1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matthew Miller, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Rabbi Dr. Stu Halpern, Senior Advisor to the Provost of YU and Deputy Director of the Strauss Center for Torah and Western Thought. about his new book, Esther in America, published by Magid Books and Yeshiva University Press in 2020. Esther in America is a splendid collection of essays on the complex history of the Book of Esther in America, and particularly American Jewish culture. Rabbi Dr. Stuart Halpern has assembled a range of essays from some of of today's sharpest scholars. Rabbi Halpern, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be here. Please, we'd like to start off, uh, please can you tell us about yourself? Sure, so I'm
0: actually originally from uh, Forest Hills, Queens. I'm a proud and unapologetic Yankees fan. I don't know if that breaks any rules. Um, But I currently serve at Yeshiva University as someone who creates all sorts of interdisciplinary projects. They could be new degrees, uh, faculty symposia, book projects like the one that we're talking about today, uh, and really just thinking together with uh, the chief academic officer of the university about what Yeshiva University can be doing to bring into conversation great books of the West and the Jewish tradition.
1: So with this book in specific, how did you come to write the book?
0: Yeah, so earlier uh, I edited a book called Proclaim Liberty Throughout the Land, the Hebrew Bible in the United States, Just sort of rolls off the tongue. Um, But I co-edited that with uh, Matt Holbreich, John Silver, who some of your listeners might recognize from the Mosaic uh, website and the Tikva podcast, and Rabbi Dr. Mayer Soloveitchik. And so that book, Proclaim Liberty Throughout the Land, actually assembled primary American documents from the Puritans through Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, and we put side by side the Hebraic uh, text, the primary verses in Hebrew and in the King James translation that inspired those uh, early Americans, trying to show how the Hebraic voice has often helped America articulate its moral language of liberty. And so that was sort of a, a survey, if you will, of, uh, of the early decades of America, and, and thank God the reception was really fantastic. The Wall Street Journal actually ran a piece uh, on its editorial page uh, right before the 4th of July when the book came, it came out, which was not an accident that we, you know, we timed the book to come out then. And the Wall Street Journal questioned kosher 4th of July, question mark, you know, for, for Jews trying to make the case that uh, there is a Hebraic voice in America's conceptualization of itself. And of course, that that is the case. And and so I wanted to take to the next level this conversation, bringing together this kind of collection, and wanted to concentrate on one particular um, biblical book, the book of Esther, and how that book has actually sh- actually shown up and continues to show up, show up rather, in American uh, political discourse from the earliest years of the country to today.
1: And so, why start with the book of Esther? Uh,
0: um, so let's let's see where was I? So uh, oh yeah, why the book of Esther? So um, the book of Esther, of course, brings to mind uh, a happy, joyous, celebratory mood, of course, being the book that is read by Jews the world over on the holiday of Purim. And so, A, it's, it, it's a fun book to think about, but also it happens to be one that once you start to think about its role in America, it's a rather a surprising one, uh, you can't avoid it. It actually comes up all the time. So just by way of uh, the tip of the proverbial iceberg, um, when the current mayor of New York, Eric Adams was running for office. He told the journalist, uh, quote, Esther 414 in the Bible stated, God made me for such a time like this. The uniqueness of my experience will allow me to ensure we could have uh, essentially uh, someone like him running the show in New York, fixing things up. So he saw, he, uh, you know, a a non, obviously non-Jew, saw Esther, the quintessential Jewess, uh, he's not even, frankly, the right gender, uh, you know, but yet he saw himself as taking on an Esther-like role. Um, interestingly enough, the last uh, press secretary for Donald Trump, switching from the Democratic side of the aisle to the Republican side of the aisle, actually uh, titled her memoir, For Such a Time as This, My Faith Journey Through the White House and Beyond, also bringing to mind the book of Esther. Um, and so I think there's something about this book, which, as we delve into in the, in the book itself, has spanned, as I've already mentioned, both sides of the aisle and, and uh, Americans of different ethnicities and religions, ranging from um, a Black abolitionist to Abraham Lincoln himself, who had his own Esther moment, um, is something that continues to resonate and continues to inspire in sometimes humorous, sometimes uh, very serious ways.
1: You mentioned in the book that, I mean, as the title implies, it's Esther in America, but America. But I wanted to make sure that our listeners know, when we say America, what do we mean? Do you mean just the United States or the whole content of America?
0: Uh, it's, a great, it's a great point. There's actually a fascinating chapter in the book that uh, that talks about, if I do say so, that it's fascinating. But I found it fascinating when it was submitted uh, as an entry to the book about how Esther was thought of in, in South America among among crypto-Jews because the idea that if one was hiding one's Jewishness, as of course crypto-Jews, uh, conventionally known as Moranos, uh, did or even do, uh, there is a particular resonance in the figure of, of Esther who, of course, her hidden, her hidden Jewishness is, is essentially her, her calling card, or is the big pivot in which the whole book of Esther turns. So, I mean, for, you know, the other 90% of the book is, is concentrated on, on North America, um, but there is that contribution uh, about uh, literally uh, St. Esther, or what the crypto Jews deemed St. Esther in South America, a uh, figure that, again, it uh, found a particular resonance for them.
1: If we zoom more into the title of the book, the subtitle is The Scrolls Interpretation and Impact on the United States. Was there a distinctive American style or flavor that you found which was specific to to America that you didn't find elsewhere?
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. So there, I mean, the idea of seeing one's own story as essentially ancient Israel 2.0 is something that uh, emerged from European political thought, whether it was the Dutch, whether it was the British, they all were sort of uh, many of many political thinkers uh, as inspired by or, or, or shaped by Christian Hebraeus, who had gone back to the Bible, were reading the Bible, uh, even in Hebrew, uh, saw themselves as somehow carrying the mantle of ancient Israel. But in America, there were definitely I, 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 so unique sets of circumstances. So, for example... Uh, there was, we tell the tale of our Mayor Soloveitchik's chapter in the book of the aforementioned Lincoln's uh, Esther moment, whereby a pastor from Chicago has an audience with uh, President Lincoln, who at the time had the Emancipation Proclamation in his desk drawer uh, and was not yet ready to release it uh, nationally. And uh, the pastor comes over to him and has a few minutes granted to an American president and essentially gives a, Uh, A sermon of what we would call in Hebrew Dvar Torah, a sermon uh, saying, uh, you know, if not uh, for this moment, have you, President Lincoln, been been put in this place? This is your Esther time to shine. You should free free the slaves. And and sure enough, like Esther, uh, who waited for her right politically savvy moment to act, not necessarily sort of jumping the gun and and, and asking for what she needed or demanding what she needed right away. So too, Abraham Lincoln uh, waited for the timing to be right strategically, politically, militarily, and then made his move releasing the Emancipation Proclamation. So um, there is something uh, uniquely American to the idea that essentially someone can quote Bible and verse to a head of state and and it might very well have had a uh, uniquely influential um uh, impact on, on United States history. if I could, if you could indulge me uh, just to tell a tale briefly of course, of, uh, of, a, of another Mordecai, not non Mordecai from uh, from the biblical book of Esther, but but a, a rather uniquely American Mordecai that of course is, is Mordecai Manuel Noah. and I don't know how familiar uh, your listeners are with this tale that's often sort of unfortunately relegated to the dustbin of American Jewish history. Well, Mordecai Emanuel Noah was the most famous Jew of his time in the first third of the 19th century. And uh, he had a grand plan, uh, pun intended. He wanted to build an island for the Jews in Grand Island uh, in upstate New York, Buffalo. Uh, and the reason that most of your listeners are probably saying, well, I've never heard of this is because it never really happened. But Mordecai uh, Emanuel Noah, who was a playwright, a sheriff, he had been an ambassador, had actually been fired from his job purportedly uh, because he was Jewish and and was told he couldn't do his job well as an ambassador in in the Barbary States, which were predominantly Muslim. Uh, So he was uh, a a man about town, friendly, or at least corresponded with all living presidents of his day, who then wrote back to him, encouraging him in his plans to advance the Jewish community in America and the like. Uh, And so around 1829, he convinced a wealthy friend of his to buy buy this land in, in, in upstate New York and tried to call the Jews of the world to unite with their long lost brethren. Uh, Their long lost brethren might have been the, or or at least he presumed as did Thomas Jefferson for a while and uh, and other uh, uh, lofty individuals of the time, that the the 10 lost tribes might've been actually the native Americans or so was the perception that that there was this theory going around, the native Americans were the 10 tribes of Israel. And Mordecai Emmanuel Noah had a, had a dream, sort of essentially have them live there with their long-lost cousins from Germany who were fleeing anti-Semitism already at the time in the, in the early uh, 1800s. And so they would all come together, sing Kumbaya, or maybe, you know, uh, say Shema Yisrael, uh, you know, together on this island, and and this would be the homeland for the Jews. And, and the idea of building a homeland for the Jews outside of the land of Israel, the, the biblical homeland for the Jews, is obviously something that cuts to the core of, of sort of the, the nature of the American Jewish project. And what it means to have the you know, the, the golden of Medina, the, the golden land, the promised land of, of a place which historically has granted uh, Jews more freedoms, uh, political, religious, and otherwise, than really any country on earth, um, particularly before the birth of the modern state of Israel, uh, you know, so Mordecai Manuel Noah's story happens to dovetail in this very particularistic American way with the story of uh, Mordecai, Esther's cousin, in the scroll of Esther. Um, now, why am I telling you all this? Because I'm not making this up. There, this was actually picked up on by folks during Mordecai Emmanuel Noah's day, particularly uh, an opponent of his plan, which uh, went nowhere to, to have the Jews unite in Grand Island, New York. And... Uh, and this a writer, actually from Vienna, an Enlightenment, Jewish Enlightenment writer, uh, wrote in a Hebrew language journal uh, to his readership, while Mordechai Manuel Noah had made his call to the Jews of the world to come home, or at least to a temporary home near Buffalo, uh, he said, uh, just like there was a Mordechai in the time of the Megillah uh, that was not accepted by all of his brethren, picking up on the nuance that the uh, ancient rabbis of the Jews, the Talmudic rabbis, uh, picked up on that, the Megillah, the scroll ends with that Mordechai was ratsui l'rovechav, he was accepted by uh, seemingly most of his brethren as the leader of his people. Uh, so this Enlightenment writer said, this Mordechai, Mordechai Manuel Noah, should not be accepted by most of his brethren, not even a little bit of his brethren. No one should listen to this guy. He is full of uh, smoke. And so uh, he, uh, this Mordechai Manuel Noah in his own day, sort of framed as a uh, Mordechai 2.0 uh, and, and criticized as such. And so over and over again, you know, from this sort of rather curious footnote in American Jewish history to contemporary politics, where you know, I kid you not, Monica Lewinsky was uh, compared to Esther uh, when the Clinton scandal broke. And awkwardly enough, on the campaign trail in 2016, when Hillary Clinton was asked who her favorite biblical character was, she actually said, uh, Esther. And so, uh, like I said, uh, Esther has been there since the beginning and seems to keep popping up when you least expect her.
1: So that is quite interesting that, that Hillary Clinton and other people are, are viewing Esther in a very positive light. And I think if you think about the book as a whole, some might try to say there's good people, there's Esther, there's Mordecai, there's the bad people on the other side, perhaps including Vashti in it. But it's not necessarily so clear and, and so uh to, to be taken for granted. And I think in, in some of the chapters, we see a bit of the nuance there. So could you maybe pick up on that? And, and especially with Vashti and some other characters, how maybe there is a bit more nuance that we could see. Yeah, yeah.
0: it's interesting. Vashti, who, um, just to remind the listeners, is, is, um, is Ahasuerus or Xerxes' uh, first wife who is uh, deposed, maybe killed. It's sort of seemingly ambiguous in the verses what happens to her exactly, but essentially refuses to appear at a party before um, Xerxes' Uh, when she is called, um, the the rabbis of the Talmud suggest that she was actually called to appear nude, uh, wearing only the crown uh, in front of an audience, which is why she refused um, so or at least was the request that maybe she would have acquiesced but refused due to an outbreak of some sort of uh, ugly disease. The rabbi suggests anyway to in the rabbinic imagination, Vashti is is a no goodnik uh, is is an evil character um, who Uh, oppressed the Jews of of ancient Persia. But uh, in the modern imagination, Vashti has actually been reclaimed. uh, uh, There's a recent children's book, actually, called uh, Something to the Effect of Vashti and Her Comfy Pants, um, sort of celebrating the idea of young women refusing to, uh, you know, uh, wear anything other than sweatpants and come when when beckoned. And uh, and, uh, Vashti has been um, put on a pedestal as essentially a, a feminist hero, heroine, and, um, and has popped up also in, in unlikely places and has, uh, this already, I believe had come up in, um, in the uh, something called the Women's Bible um, in 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 America in the 1800s, this idea that let's revisit this figure who stood, you know, she persisted to use the modern parlance. Um, that Vashi persisted. Okay, it didn't end well for her, but you know, details, details. Um, she was a righteous uh, objector, conscientious objector to being uh, to being treated uh, like a, like an to being objectified, and so Vashi became almost like a Me Too uh, victim. In the, or has become that in the modern imagination uh, or, or modern consciousness. And so it is interesting to see the afterlives of secondary characters in the book uh, make appearances as uh, as heroines. There's there's also a novel called The Book of V that came out, got a lot of press, it was published by a major publisher, um, where the story is essentially recast. And I believe Vashti is, is, is a, a wife in Washington, D.C., um, married to a politician. And so there's all sorts of modern manifestations from children's literature to uh, best-selling uh, works of fiction reviewed in the New York Times that harken back to um, even the secondary characters of Esther, which which is testament to how powerful of a hold the story holds in, in the American uh, consciousness.
1: So if we take this example, Vashti is understood in ways which are Against the rabbinic mainstream understanding uh, of the character, Um, so I wonder in that sense, were there any guidelines that you had that you set in which you said, this is totally out of bounds. It's totally against Orthodox theology, Orthodox doctrine, or, and and were there were other places perhaps you push the ground. How do you navigate
0: those it's issues? Great, it's a great question. So I, yeah, definitely as a book that's produced by Yeshiva University by a by a center for Torah and Western thought and Yeshiva University, um, we definitely you know, made, made a clear in conversation with the contributors that this should be something, uh, a that obviously has respect for the text, b you know perceives the text, the biblical text that is, to be authoritative. Um, and, and, and see, we're, we're not looking to, to disavow any one of their traditional belief, uh, in any way, shape or form. We're obviously, a, um, a committed, uh, orthodox, modern orthodox community at, at Yeshiva University, um, on, on our undergraduate level, uh, and, and some of our Judaic uh, graduate schools. Uh, and so, uh, so yeah, so there were, I guess you could say somewhat narrower goalposts than there would be in an otherwise sort of detached, uh, secular academic work of, of scholarship here. We definitely came in with the premises, um, premises that I just mentioned. And also the fact that we see, we see real impact here as we've been discussing, you know, we see this as, as a positive, we see biblical literacy as a, as a positive. We find it of, of interest, uh, if not always inspiration, but at the very least, um, um Powerful and worth noting when Americans have and continue to quote the Bible to articulate their visions of themselves and their uh, their their own visions for a better America. And so that was you know those were sort of the the groundworks, the conceptual groundworks for for the folks who were asked to uh, to contribute.
1: Thank you for that. I'll say parenthetically, before the next question we go more into the book, I do appreciate that you said before that Esther and Mordechai are cousins, because there is this common misconception that Mordecai is an uncle of Esther, and we just want to make sure that the listeners know that that's not in fact the case, and the text says clearly otherwise, so thank you for your correct <laughs> note. One other question that I'd like to know, um, this is just getting to the introduction a little bit, is you begin the introduction with Sojourner Truth and her use of of the book. So why start there and could you give a bit of a taste of of how she uses the book within her own speeches and her own thought? Sure. So Sojourner Truth uh, on September 7th in
0: 1853 uh, got up at a very rowdy uh, public speaking context. It was at a women's rights rally in New York that was so um, hindered and interrupted by uh, white men who were, were trying to disturb uh, her, her march towards equal rights and, and freedom that she was advocating for, that it became known as the Mob Convention. That's how disruptive the crowd was at the time. And so uh, she got up and she could neither read nor write Sojourner Truth. And in this very fraught moment, in this moment where you could think, okay, what, what is she going to say that could possibly, uh, A, sort of quiet this crowd, or at the very least um, sort of blow past them with words of inspiration and moral truth and, and, and light the, the way for the country towards a more uh, ethical and equal direction. And shockingly enough, uh, she said as follows. She said, I have only a few minutes to speak, but in the old times, the kings of the earth would hear a woman. There was a king in the scriptures, and then it was the kings of the earth would kill a woman if she come into their presence. But Queen Esther come forth for she was oppressed and felt there was a great wrong. And she said, I will die or I will bring my complaint before the king. Should the king of the United States be greater or more crueler or more harder? So Sojourner Truth then continued on to discuss the book of Esther and how it applies to her own cause. She herself put on the mantle of this Jewish queen in Persia who she had heard about. She could neither read nor write, as I mentioned. And yet there was something about this figure, something about uh, an individual, uh, in this case female, who had been thrust into the national stage or had Put themselves, found themselves through their own courage, on the national stage, and could make a difference for their people. And to sojourner truth, there was nowhere better to turn than Esther to tell that story. Um, and she, she, you know, she didn't, uh, she didn't wrestle with this at all. Unhesitatingly, she brought to mind and she articulated this story that she had recalled from from her earlier days. Um, you had asked me before, by the way, about. Uh, about villains, so I would be remiss if I didn't come back to the fact that in the American Revolution, as uh, or rather in the decade before the American Revolution, as uh, Doctor Iran Shalev uh, wrote in his in his excellent chapter on Haman or Haman in the uh, Revolutionary Era, and he uh, he is uh, author of a really fantastic um, time uh, book called American Zion uh, that tells the sort of the narrative tale of how America. Uh, utilized the Bible in, it, in its uh, early decades, whereas the aforementioned Proclaimed Liberty was essentially a source book, maybe even a companion, one might say, to Iran Shalev's American Zion. So Professor Shalev uh, noted how in the decade prior to the American Revolution, Americans weren't quite ready to, to sort of throw in the towel at uh, George III. Uh, and so they were wrestling with rather oppressive policies, the whole taxation without representation thing uh, and the like, but you weren't, quite ready to make the jump into what might be called treason by the Brits. And so uh, in in trying to articulate to themselves in newspapers and in sermons how they should think about the relationship between an oppressive monarch who is levying uh, oppressive policies on them, but they weren't quite ready to rebel against, they naturally turned to the story of Esther. And they wrestled with the fact, or they saw an analogy in the fact that in the book of Esther – there is also an oppressive monarch who you might be able to uh, uh, apologize for or excuse because it's not him who's doing the, the bad policies. It's not he who is writing the laws, but it's rather the minister in his ear who is suggesting bad advice, who is coming up with the idea to oppress other people, to oppress minorities under the king's control. So at least originally, Americans tried to uh, protect their perception of George the Third by blaming Lord North, Lord Boot, and uh, and the prime ministers of uh, of uh, Britain at the time, and saying they were actually Haman's, Hamans of their day. They were giving bad advice to George III, and George III was more like somewhat of a, a clueless monarch. Maybe he was busy with all his uh, queens in the palace, and wasn't actually paying attention to what was going on in the colonies, very similar to uh, essentially the portrayal of Ahasuerus Xerxes in the Book of Esther, manipulated by his nefarious prime minister.
1: So with the time allotted, we won't have the chance, of course, to get into all of the chapters and we won't even get into all the sections. There's a number of very interesting sections, but we'd love to zoom in a little bit, at least on, on one section, on one chapter, which I found particularly interesting. And that's in the diaspora life and dual identity section. And I think, as you mentioned before, a big part of the book of Esther is how to navigate that identity, that diaspora identity that one might have living outside of the land of Israel. And so in one of the chapters by Dara and it's kind of a funny story, is the title of the chapter. She discusses a myth, and she goes into the idea of naming and names and and how that's a big part of our identity, and she connects it to the book of Esther. And so the question here is really just to help us understand this chapter and to give a taste of what she writes there. And, of course, we encourage people to check out the book for for more.
0: Sure, and, and I obviously can never do justice to, to Dara's uh, writing. She's an incredible writer, of course, and I would highly recommend uh, her book, People Love Dead Jews. Um, which I believe actually excerpts uh, or, or utilizes this, uh, this chapter in, in Esther in America in that book as well. Um, but essentially the argument there is the self-perception uh, in America that somehow our, our, our dual identities are not our fault, or they're, they're almost something that was hoisted upon us, meaning... Uh, many families in America have the, I guess, myth, for lack of a better uh, term, or, or the story, the funny story about how their grandparents' names were changed at Ellis Island, how they showed up with one name, somehow left or were checked into this country uh, with another name, much to their chagrin. And uh, and Darren Horn points out that, that it's actually, uh, there's no historical evidence whatsoever to that, and that there would actually be, you would be fired if you were an Ellis Island immigration officer uh, who changed someone's name. And uh, They actually were very... Uh, exacting on copying the you know the the roster of fo- the the ship uh, manifest, I believe is the word, are uh, the list of folks who who are coming on the boat. Uh, and rather, what had happened was that American Jews wanted to um, assimilate, blend in, um, recently, this came up. I don't think she uses this example, but um, that uh, I believe Ruth Weiss actually mentions this in, a, in her memoir, Free as a Jew, that uh, uh, Bob Dylan was, of course, born uh, Robert Zimmerman, but Leonard Cohn, not American, but Canadian, actually stayed Leonard Cohn. And that she felt there was something to, uh, she, Ruth Weiss, felt there was something to Canadian Jewish pride that they specifically, or that Leonard Cohn did not, that specifically not change his name, uh, unlike. Uh, you know, his rough contemporary, Bob Dylan. Uh, so, so there is no question that you know. I would imagine your listeners are well versed in whether it's movie stars, or musicians, and the like who anglicize their names in an attempt to blend in. And uh, and Mordechai and Esther, of course, in the, in the biblical book, uh, we're told that Esther has a Jewish name, Hadassah. Um, but she's not actually referred to to that name in, in any context, just mentioned in passing. Mordechai, uh, we are not told that he had a, a, a good uh, Yiddish name, a good Jewish name. And uh, and so this idea of dual identity, of, of tension, of, of, you know, hearkening back to that Mordechai Emmanuel Noah story that I told earlier, you know, can can American Jews be fully Jewish? Will they always be pulled uh, within themselves, as, as Dara emphasizes? This was not something that anyone made them do. Uh, these immigrants. Uh, maybe they felt they needed to do it, but either way, the, the decision was ultimately theirs. You know, what What are the types of names we, we give ourselves? What are the types of names we give our children? And how does that reflect our belief that America really is a, a golden Medina, a, the promised land, uh, at least in the diaspora for the Jews? And so Dara's chapter delves deeply into thinking through these issues.
1: And one last bit of content before we we ask our famous New Books Network question. The book is, is dedicated to Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb and, and his wife who both both passed away recently over the past couple of years. And so the dual question is why dedicate the book to their memory and, and what was their their understanding of the book or how did it impact them in, in, in any way?
0: So th- uh, thank you so much for that question. So it was actually they were my wife's grandparents and um, obviously, you know, feel a deep personal and familial uh, connection to them. Um, there would always be, uh, well, first of all, Rabbi Lamb himself uh, has a, uh, a commentary, or there was a commentary compiled from Rabbi Lamb's sermons, I believe called Majesty and Mystery, about, uh, about the Megillah, and it was a, a personal favorite of his. And within our family, of course, getting together uh, for Purim, for the Purim Feast, it was actually one of the last times that, uh, that we hosted my wife's grandparents in, uh, in our home. Uh, in New Jersey, was actually the Purim uh, feast before uh, COVID. So it, it held particular resonance uh, to dedicate the book to them. And, of course, uh, Rabbi Lamb was a longtime president and then chancellor of Yeshiva University for 27 years. And so the the idea of, of Torah, Madah, um, of bringing together Torah and, and general studies, in this case the book bringing together uh, American political thought and American history and and biblical uh, texts was something that I felt would be a, a way to honor their collective memory.
1: Thank you. And I, I guess I, I sort of lied because I wanted to just add one other thing before we, we close. And that's, um, why did you decide to include the, the full text of, of the book at the end or the beginning, depending on well, how you I, I it? I thought it would
0: be fun to have sort of a, a McGillic companion, if you will, of, of folks being able to go into synagogue, to take this book, to read the interesting essays, uh, not of course while they should be praying but maybe during breaks when they were bored, And uh, this way, it would be a one-stop shop. You could bring it to synagogue on Purim uh, with the full text of the Megillah, and also maybe uh, read a thought provoking essay or two while you were there.
1: That's great. Thank you. So as I said, now we'll get to the the final question, and that's what are you working on next? So I'm I'm currently working on a Haggadah project, uh, taking
0: sort of all the stuff that we've been talking about, uh, about the impact that uh, Jewish texts have had on the American story and trying to create essentially running commentary of uh, of the Passover Seder, uh, where the uh, primary sources from uh, American texts that were inspired specifically by the story of the Exodus uh, and that tell the tale of Jewish contributions to America as, uh, as sort of the Haggadah commentary. And uh, it will feature essays in the back from different uh, luminaries from across the Jewish world, the American Jewish world, reflecting on a particular part of the Passover Seder and why it holds a particular resonance for them.
1: Thank you very much. Looking forward to check that out when it comes out. Thank you so much. We've been talking to Rabbi Dr. Stu Halpern, author of Esther in America, published in 2020 by Magid Books and Yeshiva University Press. Happy reading, my friends.